0: Hey everyone, I hope the summer is going well. A couple weeks ago, my friend and colleague, Brooke Bergman-Parr did a podcast episode on this very show about ways to reignite connection and romance during the summer season. So if you are an entrepreneur in a relationship, please make sure you check out that episode. Brooke has been an amazing addition to the Zen Founder team. She is really, really great at helping romantic partners just connect in new ways And I think that skill is especially important for entrepreneurs who, let's face it, our lives are absolutely full. We have ambitions. We have things that demand our attention and affection. Sometimes it just takes a little bit of extra intentionality and some useful tools to turn our focus back to our romantic partners. So I am grateful to have Brooke on board for the Zen Founder team. She sees a lot of couples that we work with. She and I are also leading a couples retreat in December. We are going to Hawaii with eight couples. So it's a very small gathering, but I think it will be really, really rich and really meaningful. Also a lot of fun, a great way to form friendships as well as a deep connection with your partner. So if you're interested in that, hit me up at Zenfounder.com. You can also visit the website. Today's guest is Jodi Cook. Jodi is a fantastic entrepreneur that I um, had the opportunity to meet at an event called Baby Bathwater in Croatia at the beginning of June. Jodi was named by Forbes as one of the thirty under 30 social entrepreneurs in Europe. She ran a digital agency for 10 years before selling it. But alongside her work running her own business, Jodi is a really prolific writer. She's written numerous books and articles about entrepreneurship, including a book about how to raise entrepreneurial kids, which is very similar to the book that I started, but didn't yet finish. So she got there first, good honor. And she has a new book coming out called 10-year career in which she talks about the sort of this life cycle, this path of creating a business such that you have the option of working or not working within a 10-year framework. So Jody and I talk quite a bit about this book in this interview. We are on similar book timelines. Both of our books come out the last week of July. So of course there's some commiseration and (laughs) consolation around the book writing and publishing process. Jodi is a fantastic human to be in conversation with, just grounded, calm, clear about what she thinks and what's important to her. She's an absolute delight. So I hope you enjoy this conversation and thanks so much for listening. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs. And I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. Jody, it is so good to have you on the show. Thanks for making the time.
1: Thank you, Sherry. So good to be here.
0: I am excited to talk to you about your life as an entrepreneur and as a a very prolific writer. So you have um, a new book coming out, 10 Year Career. Is that still yet to be released?
1: Yes, it comes out in about three weeks. So yeah, very soon. We're in the pre-launch period.
0: Okay. Well, tell me about
1: the book. So 10-Year Career is a framework for entrepreneurs that I think is super useful in avoiding the confusion that the entrepreneurial journey can contain. And I think that a lot of entrepreneurs, and especially me, when I was running a business, I was so confused between what I should be doing at any given time. I would take advice from everyone and I would follow different routes and go down different rabbit holes without actually thinking, is this right for my journey? And so the idea of 10-year career is that it helps entrepreneurs follow these four very key steps in their business with the goal of making work a choice within 10 years.
0: So the idea being that if you follow the framework, do the work after 10 years, you'll have the choice of whether to work or not.
1: Yes. All the four. And so the four steps are execute, systemize, scrutinize, exit, and there's no stipulation on how long you spend in each phase, but they have to be followed in order. And from researching absolutely loads of entrepreneurs, it's crazy how many people have actually followed that journey. And because they did the right thing at the right time, they could make work a choice within 10 years.
0: Yeah. The challenge is the right thing at the right time, right? That sounds like some of the dilemma that led you to write the book in the first place of this question of how, how do I know what to focus on? I can ask five different people. I get five different answers. How does the framework help people kind of decide for
1: themselves without you know pulling the audience as you were doing I think there are some pieces of advice that you get that are very good for some stages and very bad for other stages. So one of them is like, say yes to everything, be everywhere, talk on stage all the time. I think that if you're in the execute stage, that's amazing because that's the time where definitely say yes, go all in, see what sticks, build an audience, put yourself out there. But if you're in the scrutinise phase where, you've got a business that feels like a well-oiled machine because you've got so many systems in place. You've got a team that looks after everything. Actually, it might not be right for you at all to say yes to lots of things and to just give your time away. It might be far better to hang back and to wait for the right moment and to cherry pick opportunities rather than going for everything. So it helps entrepreneurs choose where they are, select where they are based on what's going on at any given time, and then be able to go, huh, That's not quite right for me now, but maybe it is later or maybe it was for a past phase. And then they can take advice in without necessarily internalizing it and turning it into this thing that they either feel like they have to do or feel guilty for not doing. Because that was that was huge for me. If I ever got advice from someone, I would feel like, oh, I need to take this or I need to do it or I need to have an update for them. And I would ignore the part of me that just said, hmm, not sure that's right for me right now. It seems like knowing which phase you're in is part of the magic sauce. Yes, definitely.
0: I've talked about similar things with a framework of adult development. This doesn't map onto the entrepreneurial career because this is talking about a much longer career than a 10-year career, but generally in your 20s, it's the time to sort of do everything, be everywhere, try all the things, say yes. And then in your thirties, you're starting to weaning what really fits for you, what you have energy for, what, where you belong. And then you enter this sort of different phase in your forties and fifties where you're you've established mastery. And then you're beginning to think about winding down the thing that you've mastered and, and investing in others, sort of the generativity
1: phase of Ericsson's human development.
0: So I've stretched it out for like 40 to 50 years. You've put it in 10 years.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a very similar concept though. I guess with, um, with the 10-year career, with the execute phase, you could start it at any time. There's nothing to say that a 40 or 50-year-old couldn't start their 10-year career right now. You don't have to start it fresh out of school or college, but it still holds true that you've got the execute. And then when you go into systemize, it's like, how do you know that your execute phase is over? And so in the book, we talk about having a milestone and reaching certain checkpoints within execute to then progress to systemize at the right time for your business.
0: Amazing. And I think you're you are you're such an interesting person to carry forth this message because you've been thinking about how entrepreneurs thrive for a lot of years i mean you've written numerous books been a thought leader and sort of voice around entrepreneurship in lots of different places how did you become an entrepreneur were you always an entrepreneur Were you born an entrepreneur or was there a set of experiences that led you down this path
1: when i was younger i grew up with an entrepreneurial mom and so she had her own business i think from when i was about 15 And I knew, I didn't know exactly what she did at first, but I knew that work was important to her because when she worked from home and she was on the phone, me and my sister had to be quiet. And that was very important that we were quiet. So I got this sense of work being something that you can very much own, that gives you autonomy, that you take pride in. And that was the position that work held in my head. And then I don't think I thought too much about it until I went through the education conveyor belt and just carried on going to the next stage that was expected of me, as many of us do, like um, secondary school, college, university, every, every graduate scheme, everything else. And then when I finished my graduate scheme, that's where I thought, now is the time to do this. Now is the time to just give stuff a go and see what I can achieve on my own. And I felt like getting a job was a plan B. And I think what came into that was that throughout my whole education, I'd had, uh, I, th- I think I worked out I'd had 15 jobs before I was 22. And so I just thought, well, it's easy to get a job. <laughs> you just you just apply for one and then you show up and then you get it. And so I don't want to make that my plan A. I want to make that my fallback option for if this business thing doesn't work out. It's so interesting to hear you talk about how
0: some of the seeds of entrepreneurship were planted watching your mom's enjoyment of her work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. She loved it. And she would talk to us a little bit about clients and she would get up early and go networking. And she had these things that she just did that sounded pretty cool. And when I learned how to drive, she got me involved in a few of her projects and I did some mystery shopping. So I went to car dealerships and I had to look around and make sure they had certain signage on the walls and then I had to speak to the sales director and make sure they said certain things about the brand of finance that they were using because that was my mom's client so she kind of outsourced some work to me and there was one (laughs) there was one time I remember going to a car dealership and I was about I must have been 17 or 18 I probably looked about 12 and I had to pretend that I wanted to buy a Saab and these are really quite big cars quite like Dad cars. (laughs) I don't think it it didn't look believable at all that I wanted to buy this car, but I had to pretend that I did. So the sales guy kind of looked at me like, "Right, you want you want to buy one?" I was like, "Yeah, I just really like them." But it was, but yeah, I had to, I had to take it seriously. I had to fill out my form and I had to complete the task and I knew that it was important. And especially having my mom as my kind of boss for this task, it was, I was, I was definitely not going to get it wrong. You weren't motivated. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) And one of the books that you've written is about raising entrepreneurial kids. And is that sort of based on your experience of being raised by an entrepreneurial parent?
1: Yes, exactly. So when I first started my business, I was, really fascinated by the fact that none of my friends who were also 22 started a business themselves and they just all thought of it as this huge risk and I remember thinking why what is in that like why don't I see this as a risk and they all don't want to they want they see starting their own business as something they might do when they're 30 or 40 or 50 but not now and it was all based on that entrepreneurial role model from a young age and a lot of the time if you ask entrepreneurs what made them start out it's because they had that parent or uncle or aunt or someone in their family usually that inspired them so I started becoming a bit obsessed into how entrepreneurs created and what is it in their childhood that gets them to be how they are and as part of that Ben my husband and I decided that we were going to write this series of books, because we just thought, how, how hard can it be to write a series of kids books? And they're called Clever Tax, and the goal of those is introducing kids to entrepreneurial role models, so that if they don't have a parent who has a, their own business, they see that role model, and they can emulate that kind of behavior, so it opens up options for them in their future. And so this was all on a, I think we were on an airplane when we came up with, with this silly idea that we would write these books. And then we wrote them and then we got them published. And then that led into a load more projects. And one of them was I logged onto Harrow. So it's Help a Reporter Out, where journalists can go and find stories for their, find sources for their stories. And I asked the internet two questions. And one was, how are you raising entrepreneurial kids? And the other one was, how were you raised to be entrepreneurial? And I thought I might get a few responses that I could just write a blog post from. And I got 500. Oh, my goodness. And it was 500 responses in crazy detail of people pouring their heart out to me, telling them me about their childhood or what they were hoping to pass on to their kids and all this different stuff. And that's when I thought, whoa, this is a book. This is so a book. It will be amazing. And so... I called up a guy I know called Daniel Priestley, who I'd just known for a while through the kind of businessy scene. And he's an author and he's got three kids under seven. So I thought, I'm not a parent, but I want to join up with a parent to write this so that we've got both sides. We've got the kind of I'm almost the kid in the story and then he's the person who's actually passing these lessons onto his kids. So the whole book's a load of case studies and a load of different examples and it's all around, yeah, how to raise entrepreneurial kids and how people who are now entrepreneurs were raised to be entrepreneurial. I love it. It sounds so... In line with
0: a lot of the questions that entrepreneurs who are also parents are asking, how do I help my children survive their education essentially? Like, if they're in traditional education, if they're in the machine, how do I sort of help protect those little sparks of entrepreneurship that maybe they're naturally, or maybe they're by nature, of
1: being raised in an entrepreneurial family? From the people who we've spoken to and the the ones who submitted their case studies the main thing that they struggle with is the balance they want to be not so pushy that someone just completely switches off but not so laid back that someone doesn't develop that entrepreneurial spirit so they're all trying to find this perfect balance of exactly that right level of inspiration which is hard I think. Oh yeah. That's sort of like a hard thing about parenting anyway.
0: But yeah, I think especially when it comes to vocation, that can be really tricky. So not only do you write about entrepreneurship, but you've been an entrepreneur. You ran a social media agency for a number of years that had an exit. Are you currently in the, the grind of running a business? or you're in the blissful post-exit life.
1: (laughs) I (laughs) I say playfully. (laughs) Yeah, I guess I'm in the blissful post-exit life because it's been about 18 months now. And I think the the post-exit life is interesting. And I think that you don't actually know how you're going to feel until it happens. And then there's a lot of that you think you think you know how it's going to feel. And you think you know what you're going to do after you sell your business. And then it happens and you're like, whoa, this is this is so different. This is a, an absolute minefield as well. So because I've been doing book promotion, I guess that's distracting, distracting me from not having a business. <laughs> but then I know that I'm going to start another business at some point in the future. And I'm in the, I'm in the glorious early stages of it yet at the moment where no, no one knows about it. We haven't yet got any clients because we're in the early stages and I'm thinking about the book first. So yeah, it feels very glorious right now.
0: You're in sort of the, the ID8 stage without the pressure to execute.
1: Yes. Yeah. The ID8 stage is amazing, although it can be really difficult to stop yourself buying domain names and regist- uh-huh. <laughs> registering trademarks and all that other stuff that entrepreneurs just love to do.
0: Yeah. But there's something to be said for putting your stamp on it while it's percolating.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I would love to do a survey of, how, of all entrepreneurs and their annual domain name bill because I imagine some of them are crazy. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh yeah. How is book launch going? You've done a number of books. How is this book launch process similar or different than the other books that you've launched?
1: This one feels the most important. I wrote this book while my agency sale was completing because there was about, there was about three months where I knew that we were going to sell, but it hadn't yet completed. I knew that it was really important that I didn't tell anyone anything then because that could jeopardize the sale. But I also knew that I was so impatient. It felt like, it felt a little bit like being in limbo. It was quite similar to how I felt during university or college. It was like, I know this isn't real life, but I have to still treat it like it is. But at the same time, I felt like it was this kind of, purgatory stage of waiting for real life to start and that's how I felt while I was doing the due diligence and waiting for things to go through and waiting for lawyers and everything else. So what I thought is rather than get really back involved in my business and confuse everything for everyone and rather than follow up the buyer and just annoy everyone, I thought I would channel all this energy into writing a book and going back over the last 10 years of of this career And trying to pull out the key messages to help other people in on their same journey but so far it's going well it's had really it's had a really good reception from people who've read it and then it's just it's just really fun promoting it and knowing that it's gonna help a lot of people and knowing that i really believe in the messages that are behind it it feels quite vulnerable because it's got a lot of stories and things in it from from me and from my journey as well. So it's a tiny bit terrifying that they're gonna be out there, but at the same time I'm I I don't think I take myself seriously enough to really mind that much. I think I'd rather it was out there than it was a secret.
0: Right, absolutely. I am also on a very similar book timeline. Uh, My book's coming out July 26th. We're recording this on July 4th, so about that three-week mark. And like you, it's a very personal book, and it feels very different than the books that I've done before. And so there's that sense almost of like pregnancy, right? You're holding something, and it's just time to birth it, like time to get it out there.
1: Yeah. How do you feel about yours? Do you feel scared at all?
0: I do. And, And similarly to what you express, there's a sense of a lot of myself being in the book. And that does feel different because it's, it's not an intellectual work as much as it's a heart work. And those are, they're both integrated, but it does mean that once the book is out in the world, it stops being mine. It's now, it now belongs to the reader.
1: And so their reaction to it's always tricky. Do you find it easy to separate? Cause we talked about this a little bit in, in Croatia and we talked about the online persona of you. Versus the you in real life and how intertwined they are. And if you can take the best bits, which is you are you all the time and you have, say, one profile online. But at the same time, if you've got someone kind of criticizing or, or kind of throwing negativity at you, you can also distance from that. Do you find it easy to do that?
0: To some extent, yeah. I think there's always the sting of the criticism that all people who do things in public feel. But I think that part of getting good at this calling in life to be a teacher or an online presence, or however we want to think about that, is learning to separate yourself from
1: some of the sting. It's crazy, isn't it? You'll get like, you could get 100 amazing reviews and then that one that's just not nice, you just fixate on that. And I think it's really hard not to do that. It's Helped me,
0: I think, to understand it from its adaptiveness. Right. Our brains are hyper attuned to negativity because sometimes they represent threat. And even though, from an ego perspective, it's much nicer to be able to focus on the positive feedback, from a survival perspective, it's the negative feedback that might contain a hint of threat. And so we have to hyper attune to that to make sure we're safe. So now that I've kind of downloaded that understanding of it, I'm a little gentler with myself. Like, oh, I know I need to focus on this to see if there's anything I need to take as a learning or as instructive, like if I need to hold on to this in some way. So once I put it through that filter, I can usually sort of take the lesson if there's a lesson and release it. If I'm like, no, 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 I'm clear. I'm safe. It's good. Yeah. Nice. I like that. I mean, you've done a lot of Things in public, like how do you cope with the negative review, the negative feedback, the questions, the criticism?
1: I think try and understand where it's coming from. I think when it's there's a difference between criticism and critique, and I really appreciate critique, especially if it comes from someone who you really trust and you value their opinion. And you know that they have your best interests at heart. That's when it's so useful. And that's sometimes quite hard to get, I think, because I think you have to be on that level of trust where you can, where you can have that, have that conversation. But I think I could definitely get, a, get better at the criticism side of things for sure.
0: So you are getting ready to move from the home that you had for a number of years and to go full nomad. Tell me about that process for you and your husband.
1: Yes. Well, when I was running the agency in my what I would call my scrutinised phase, the third phase where the business felt like it was this well oiled machine, we used to travel for one month in every three and say so we'd pick somewhere somewhere cool that we wanted to check out, book some flights there, book an Airbnb, join a gym and go and kind of live there for a month and then come back here to the UK and then spend another two months here. And then we did that on repeat for about five years until COVID hit. And then because during 2020 and a lot of 2021, we were kind of stuck in one place. Now it almost feels like I really want to get back to traveling again. And in the last year there's been about seven months of them that I've spent out of the UK and now coming back here to the same place that I spent lockdown feels like it almost feels like going back in time and I think we're such creatures of habit and the same thought patterns and sometimes I get really itchy feet about going away and traveling because I can feel my I can almost feel my mind closing when I'm in the same places for too long so now it feels like not having a base is this throwing ourselves in the deep end step that feels necessary for right now. And I don't know where it's going to lead or anything, but I think it'll be, it'll be right, whatever happens. So it
0: sounds like this desire to be in different locations, experiencing different sensory input is a big part of the context of creative thinking for you. Of getting outside of patterns and having novel approaches
1: to the way that you're seeing the world. Yeah, it's huge. The ideation phase of coming up with new ideas for articles or books or anything all comes from just new things. I think it comes from just walking around different places with my eyes open, looking up and seeing new stuff, kind of downloading it and then being able to turn that into words on the page. So without that, you can just walk around your normal hometown and you don't have any new thoughts and then you just have the old thoughts and then you're in these old habit loops and thought loops that i find quite scary so i'm always trying to seek that pattern interrupt and the new people and the new places and the new smells and sounds and even just going and hearing how someone else does something that you thought was totally normal that they do differently can just open a whole new load of ideas for business ideas and article ideas and book ideas and and everything else so yeah i I kind of crave that. I really, I really look, look for that when I don't have it.
0: I am really built the same way, like a high capacity for openness to new experience and sort of need for novelty. And I'm, I'm curious for you how that need and desire has mapped on to the phase of business when you're in systematize because those things have been difficult for me to reconcile the openness to new experience, taking it all in novel thinking, creativity, and then the like rinse and repeat nature of systematizing.
1: Yeah. I think it starts from an awareness that there are kind of two types of people. You've got settlers and explorers. And I think modern marketing is all aimed at settlers so if you watch adverts or commercials on the tv it's all aimed at that perfect house that perfect family that perfect I don't know cushion and sofa and all the other <laughs> it's stuff the ideal cushion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and like you know you go away on holiday or a vacation and then you come back and it's all like all about settling whereas not everyone actually wants to do that and some people want to tend towards exploring rather than tend towards settling and so I think I get more freaked out about the idea of finding the perfect cushion than I do about just living out of a suitcase for a year. And you'll know which one you are from which one fills you with dread and which one makes you think, yes, I want to do that. So the systemized phase for me was a means to an end of being able to travel because before the systemized phase I was in execute and that's when I was just doing everything in my business you know when you those those glorious days where you start out where I affectionately refer to them as the, the Jody show because I was looking after all clients doing all sales accounts HR legal everything and just couldn't go anywhere just was pretty much trapped had to look after people if I went on holiday my business would have just not function at all so it just it just wasn't worth it so when I thought I need to start systemizing here it was because I wanted to travel so it was a very necessary short-term thing to get right so that I could go away and I remember in the execute phase when I realized that I just wanted to go to Australia and couldn't um I booked a trip to Australia that was five weeks long So I booked the flights and it was three months in the future. And this was my deadline for being able to create a business that ran without me. And then gave myself three months to systemize everything and get other people looking after stuff and outsource things and eliminate things and automate things so that my business could function when I was the other side of the the time zone.
0: So for you, you had to sort of stay in one place while you were systematizing? Or were you able to systematize from the road? Because that's the thing that's been really difficult for me.
1: At first, it was all in one place. It was, create, it was all done with Excel documents and different SOPs and coming up with a whole structure of where everything that happened in the business had this, this way it was done and that was the way it should just be done forever and if someone else was asking me about it then I wanted to stop them asking me about it and instead consult the manual or the SOPs or the the kind of document and it didn't mean that it couldn't change in the future and if they came up with a better way of doing something they could create that but I wanted to create the default that didn't just involve asking me I wanted to stop being used as Google by my team but that all happened from one place in those three months. And it probably wasn't completely finished in the three months, but it was finished to the point where I could go away and then came back and then carried on that journey of making sure it was this this machine.
0: Yeah, come back and scrutinize. <laughs> came, came back,
1: scrutinized, thought what is next, yeah.
0: So another part of your life, in addition to being an entrepreneur and an author, is that you're also a power lifter. How has that part of you been important in this phase of your life?
1: I was thinking about that today when I was in the gym and I was thinking powerlifting and sport in general must come first because I would never skip a session and I don't think I would ever skip it for something work related so therefore it must come above it in terms of priorities but I think that's been super useful because it means that you've got these non-negotiables in life like like having a sport, like relationships, friendships, everything else. And then business has to fit in around it. I think from the early days of business, when I was doing loads of networking, meeting loads of people, I definitely remember meeting people who would put their business first to the detriment of everything else. So maybe their health wasn't super good and they were thinking, oh, I'll sort this out in five years when my business has got to a certain level. Or maybe their relationships weren't super strong and they were thinking, oh, this will be all right when I, when I reach this milestone and then I'll, then I'll sort my marriage out or something like that. And I remember thinking, I don't think that it actually works like that. I think I'd rather do it the other way around and put other things first and then let business be the thing that fills the gaps rather than the other way around.
0: Yeah, having that really hard defining line, I think, is a helpful counterbalance to that openness, that non-linearity, that creativity that is so part of your work.
1: Yeah, and powerlifting, you can't really do it while thinking about something else because it would get kind of dangerous. You can't be there squatting, benching and deadlifting when you're your head's somewhere else. It's not, you know, you can do it while you go for a run. You could kind of think about anything while you're running. But when you're lifting heavy weights, nah, you have, to be, you have to be totally focused and it just doesn't matter what's going on in the day. But the thing I like about sport and business is those, I'm going to call them like crunch time moments. You know, those moments where, before you lift a deadlift off the floor, you know it's going to be really, really heavy and you know that you don't really want to do it. But you know that when you do, you're going to feel so much better having done it. And it's the same like with, I don't know, diving off a diving board or that moment where you know you want, you have to call someone, but you don't really want to because you're a bit scared about what they're going to say or if they're going to say no. And I love looking for those crunch time moments and seeking them out and doing that in both sport and business because they're just, it's kind of where all the growth is. What's the
0: line in your head that you say
1: right before you lift? <laughs> oh my god, there are so many. Some of them maybe aren't repeatable. <laughs> <laughs> this is
0: a family show.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is a family show. I think I I have got little mantras that I use at any given time, but one of them is just "This is what we train for," or like "This is this is it," or "This is now" because. Especially when competing, it's really easy to shy away from the competition. But really, that's the point. The point of the training is the competition. So I like to remind myself that this is the purpose and almost train my brain to love competition days and love being on stage lifting. Because the alternative is that you're just a recreational lifter who has, has it as a hobby. And that's not the place it has in my life. I have a similar...
0: Relationship with a sport and mine is circus arts. It's a little bit different, but there's that same moment before I jump off the platform on the flying trapeze where I'm afraid and I am totally aware of how difficult the next 30 seconds is going to be. You know, like you're just, it's that moment where you're poised, where everything in your body is ready and getting your mind online is often, you know, that tricky point of like taking the breath, having the thought and then going.
1: Yeah. It's so good though. Moving towards those moments is just great. You always have to train yourself to love it. I remember when, when I was at um, college, I was in the cross country and athletics team and we used to go on these training runs every Monday and Wednesday nights. And, I was living in a really hilly place that was really cold and wet all the time. And we just, it wasn't that fun going running outside on these evenings. But the coach would teach us to, when we were running up hills, to chant, we love the hills, we love the hills. And when we were going out in the rain, he would go, we love the rain, we love the rain. And there'd be 20 students running, not really being that happy, but chanting, chanting up hills and chanting in the rain. And it almost reconditions our Brains to believe that we loved it, and even now, if I'm running up a hill, I'll think, "I love the hill, I love the hill." (laughs) Just, just as a as a kind of like from from those days. So I wonder if it's like that when you're jumping off when you're jumping off, and you know it's going to be difficult. It's like, "No, I love this. This is what we trained for. This is now. This is when it happens." And then you just you do it, and then it's not that bad. And then your comfort zone expands, and then that's where all the growth is that we're that we're all seeking.
0: And it feels like that in entrepreneurship too. I think there are parts of it that you just train yourself to love. Like, I love the hills. I love the hills. I love the spreadsheets. I love the spreadsheets. You know, there's just, you've got to put yourself into it with the enthusiasm, knowing that even if you're in a phase of business that you don't innately, naturally love, coming to love it will fuel it and help it to be successful.
1: It was like that with running an agency, because I hung out with a lot of agency owners and I really like just the term agency life is just just how I would view it, because agency life, especially I'm sure it's the same in lots of other industries, but agency life comes with lots of firefighting because you've got clients, you've got a team, you've got lots of people who want you at any given times, you've got things that could go wrong at every moment, and you are just constantly putting out fires as an agency owner. And I think it could really get you down if you Expected to not have the fires so if you expected for your whole week to go plain sailing and for you to get all this stuff done but if you turn up on Monday expecting that there are going to be loads then you're ready for it and you're not really surprised by it and that's a far healthier way of dealing with it, I think, because then you're not going to be caught off guard. Actually, your, um, one of your books, Sherry, the, the tagline is about running a business without it running you,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is exactly the thing. And that, that's actually a similar tagline for one of my books as well, which, um, so I thought that was quite cool when I saw that we both have the same feeling around it. But I'm always trying to think, how can I, how can I own this situation rather than just let it throw me off guard, especially with things like agency life?
0: Right. Not being reactive, but being intentional. Which comes back to that powerlifting or trapeze moment of like, I'm choosing this. I'm going to do this. It's very intentional and specific. If you're reacting in powerlifting or reacting in trapeze, like something has gone very wrong. right?
1: Yeah. In powerlifting as well, when you're competing, you tend to know what you're going to do for all your attempts before you get there. But then the thing that changes it a little bit is what other people are doing. Because if you're trying to go for a certain spot on the podium, or if you're trying to get a place in a, in the the next competition, then you have to have one eye on what other people are doing. And sometimes that's hard because it's, it can throw your own game plan last minute. So you have to kind of know your plan, but also have an eye on what other people are doing and be open to adapting. And that's a real challenging side of it, I think.
0: Well, it has been really lovely to talk with you and I'm super excited for your book and I hope that, yeah, it, Gets in the hands that it needs to get in. But, you know, for people who are interested in picking it up, it's the 10-year career. And I'm assuming it's on Amazon and in all the places where books are sold.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's at 10yearcareer.com. Fantastic.
0: Well, thank you so much for the conversation, Jodi. And for people who want to follow Jodi, she's got a, a great social media presence, but
1: she's also on Jodycook.com.
0: And are there other places that people can find you?
1: That's perfect, joliecook.com, and everything's linked from there. Okay, and we'll put that in the show notes, too, so people can find that. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Sherry.
0: Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast.